Welcome to the Cycling in Alignment podcast, an examination of cycling as a practice and dialogue about the integration of sport and right relationship to your life. Welcome listeners, you have returned to Cycling in Alignment and I am grateful. That means you're finding all the things that come out of my mind movies helpful, ostensibly. Today's episode is about mountain biking and mountain bike geometry and fitting and how all those things go together. I had an email question from my colleague, Julie Young, and she was asking about how in the world we get riders to be fit properly on a mountain bike. She had many specific questions. The central theme was around steeper C-tube angles on many modern mountain bikes and how it's challenging or sometimes impossible to get a rider's saddle offset far enough back behind the bottom bracket on a mountain bike to match their road position. This question has a lot of nuance and detail. Well, at least that's the way I see it because it tends to be how I see most things. You probably know that by now. So I brought Julie on the pod to do a sort of Q&A style episode and Julie asks all the questions. I also realized that I need to consult Travis Brown, a previous podcast guest, and I brought him aboard to discuss mountain bike geometry and weight distribution and all the nuance therein as well. So I'm grateful to both of these amazing people for making time to come and discuss with my listeners without further prognostication. Onward. Welcome space monkeys. You are back for another episode of Cycling in Alignment and today I have a repeat guest, a special guest, Julie Young. Julie's a coach based in Truckee, California, and she's here today to discuss with me some questions on fitting mountain bikes. We'll address this conversation from the overall perspective of road bike fit and how mountain bike fit can be based off of road bike fit as a reference point, as a baseline, and in some ways it is, and in many ways it's not. And there are a lot of confounding variables or different ways to get a little lost when working on mountain bike fit, setting up your mountain bike. I get questions like this all the time. And Julie wrote me some great questions the other day in an email. And after discussing it with her, we agreed to just come on the pod and share it with everyone. Julie, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be back. Yeah, it's great to have you back. So this all started when, so I, I run a lab and do fits there, but Primarily, you know, and again, it's probably a mix of road and mountain, but I have the opportunity to work with the Bear National Team and I do fits for the team and um, just coming up against a few things that I, I wasn't sure was it just like particular to me or is this something like are there have trends changed but one thing I recognized in these fits and we're working um, with Trek on the, the team is on on Trek equipment. Mm-hmm. And it seemed to me it's really hard to get the riders to a position, what we would consider kind of a, a more neutral position, what we would consider a neutral position on a road bike. And what I found in doing these fits is the the geometry of the treks are, are more upright. The seat tube angle is more um, upright. And as a consequence, I haven't been able to get the, the riders really back to that neutral position. They're, they're much more forward um, on the saddle, even when this, and even when we're as far back as possible 
on the railings of the saddle. So mm-hmm. that was my, my initial question to you mm-hmm. and kind of what is there, is there a different trend in, in mountain biking? I mean, I would assume the mechanics of pedaling are the same, but I don't know, maybe I've missed something in terms of kind of reconciling that with the handling part. Right. Yep. That's a great question. So just to, to frame the discussion again, when I look at what we're talking about is the number of millimeters, the saddle is offset behind the bottom bracket. So when the bike is level and the way I reference that in modern bikes, no, we used to be able to put a level on the top tube back in the day, but no top tubes are level anymore. So you've got to put a four foot level on either the axles or next to the wheels and get the bike level. And then you can measure how far the tip of the saddle is behind the bottom bracket. And this has an impact on several parameters of fit on a road bike we would normally look at things like how effective the rider can hinge at the hip, the length of their femur, whether they're sort of anterior chain dominant or posterior chain dominant, which is extremely rare to have a posterior chain dominant athlete. It does happen. Um, People who have an alpine skiing background can be very posterior chain dominant, for example, which means they're going to use a lot of gluten hamstring naturally, and they're going to feel best when their saddle is kind of slammed back, right? So, in a road bike, we kind of, I kind of evaluate these types of parameters and make a decision about how far the, we can push the saddle behind the bottom bracket. Generally speaking, the further we push it back, a lot of things tend to get better. Of course, you can go too far, just like anything, there's balance. And you're right, you're dead on, Julie, as far as getting someone's saddle offset behind the BB can be challenging on a mountain bike because mountain bike seat tubes are trending towards a steeper angle. So a road bike seat tube might be in the range of, we'll say 71 to 74 degrees would be pretty common. And mountain bike seat tube angles are much steeper than that. I'm actually on the Trek website right now looking at the the Slash, which is considered kind of an, an enduro bike, right? Not a cross-country bike, but we're an enduro. And we'll we'll break down a little bit about mountain bike disciplines. So this would sort of be in the middle And if we look at their geometry chart, effective C2 bangle is around 76, 75 degrees for most frame sizes. So that's quite a bit steeper. So if a rider is on a road bike and they've got a 73 or 73 and a half degree C2 bangle and their saddle is clamped somewhere near the middle of the rails for given seat height that might put their offset, their saddle offset behind the bottom bracket anywhere between 40 and 80 millimeters would be kind of a bell curve for most riders of somewhat average height and somewhat average leg proportions. You may have a hard time getting your saddle far enough back on a mountain bike in this category. And this includes a lot of cross country, like a top fuel type bike as well. And the reason for this is because there is a trend towards front wheel bias in mountain bike setup. So that means that on a road bike, we have a much closer to, not exactly, but a much closer to even weight bias over the front and rear axle, meaning closer to 50-50. 50% of the, the weight of the rider goes in the front axle and 50 on the rear. It's not exact, but plus or minus. And for this, for conceptual discussion, that's where we're at. On a mountain bike, it's much more front wheel biased. Why? Because ultimately fitting is a blend of you're, you're balancing the physiology of the rider with the demands of their event. What are the demands of road riding? A road bike has to handle over a variety of terrain, mostly at medium or high speeds. 
yeah, you're climbing at low speeds, but anytime you're handling the bike, the majority of the time it's at medium or high speeds. What do I mean by that? If you go down a twisty serpentine descent, you're going around the corners at 20, 25, 30, 35, 40 kilometers an hour, depending on how narrow the road is and how sharp the corners are. But you can easily hit speeds of 60, 80, 100 kilometers an hour, sometimes 110K an hour on fast road descents. So this is more towards the MotoGP style racing, like a long, low bike. Meaning if you are, if you're on a very fast descent at hundred kilometers an hour, that's the speed you travel in a car on a highway and your front wheel breaks loose or your rear wheel breaks loose and loses traction. It doesn't really matter which one of those wheels breaks loose. You're in trouble. You're going down most likely. And so we want the rider to be longer and lower across that wheelbase to deal with that higher speed to the higher speed requires more stability on a mountain bike. We have more corners of medium and low speed because you're on a mountain bike. You're on uneven loose terrain. You're going around switchback corners. So on a switchbacky descent on single track, you're going seven K an hour around a corner or 12 K an hour, depending again on the trail conditions and how narrow the trail is and how steep it is and all those variables. Now, of course, there are higher speed applications for mountain biking as well, but the bike has to be able to handle all those things. Also, most mountain bike trails on average, we've got steeper downhills and steeper uphills than we do on the road, generally speaking. So the bike has to be able to handle those steeper grades. And when you're going down a really steep descent, if the head tube angle is too steep, then the bike becomes too twitchy. So that's why mountain bike head angles have gotten slacker and slacker. The bike becomes more stable as we tackle steeper and more technical terrain. And the more we front wheel bias the handling in medium terrain conditions, the faster the rider can go. So a really long way to come around the circle and answer your question is there's a trend towards front weight bias on most off-road bikes. And that means a steeper seat tube angle that there's a point when those two things start to intersect into a, an asymptote of negative crappiness where we have a situation where you start to push the rider's weight forward and forward over the front wheel to give them better handling. And that comes at the expense of the ability to generate power. So the reason we front wheel bias mountain bike handling or any off-road handling, this includes gravel and cyclocross as well, is because back to my illustration about the road bike, when you're going hundred K an hour, if you lose your front wheel or your rear wheel, there's a good chance you're going down either way. On a mountain bike, if you lose your rear wheel and you're a good handler, you're an experienced mountain biker with some experience, most of the time you're okay with that little bit of a rear wheel slide on dirt. Especially if your front wheel is biased, you've got meaning you've got more weight on the front wheel than the rear. But if the front wheel goes down, usually you're, you're, you have to be a significantly better handler to not dump it. So that's handling 105 is I can break the front wheel free and be okay. Handling 101 on a mountain bike or a gravel bike is the rear wheel is fishtailing a little bit gently in corners and I'm doing okay. I'm pushing the limit. And that's why there are two big reasons why we always put suspension on the front wheel first in a mountain bike, not the rear wheel. The first is that if you run into a log or a curb or whatever, and you've got no front suspension and you don't respond appropriately, you'll go over the bars or the technical term for that is ass over tea kettle. 
So, <laughs> so you, you, we, we like to bias the front wheel with suspension and weight. And that enables us to dramatically increase the amount of speed we can have on our off-road bikes because a lot of people think of suspension as only shock absorbing, meaning when you hit that log or that curb or that rock, the fork retracts and takes the hit so that your forward momentum can go over that object without disrupting or without pushing you backwards, right? And that's true. But the other reason is when you're going through a corner, if your fork extends and pushes down during, let's say you hit a little bump in the corner that, that compresses the fork. And then you go down the backside of that tiny bump while you're still cornering, the fork extends and keeps the tread in contact with the ground. So think about it. If you're cornering and your front wheel loses contact patch with the ground, there's a really good chance you're going to fall over because that traction is what's anchoring you to the surface of the trail. So the, the fork extending down is, is what gives us such a, an increased ability to maintain traction while we're cornering at speed and where, gra- where the art of cyclocross and gravel riding and racing comes in is learning to use your body, your arms and the feel of the bike to extend and maintain that contact patch on your own without the assistance of a hydraulic suspension fork or in, in more developed cases. And we'll get to this is a mountain bike with dual suspension. So yes, <laughs> that's the short answer. There's definitely a bias to having uh, front wheel weighting, which means that mountain bike seat tubes are getting steeper. I decided to tap the infinite resources of Travis Brown, a previous guest on my podcast, episode number 14, to discuss the evolution of mountain bike geometry and the compromises made when bikes are trying to solve two different equations at once. It ends up being a a conundrum when you're searching for really clear answers to either independent geometry figures on a bike or the biomechanics. And you mentioned a lot of the reasons for that is that it's so dynamic based on maybe you're climbing 30%, maybe you're riding flat and maybe you're descending 30% grade. So um, optimal geometry and fit, you could tune to be perfect for any of those cases or somewhere in the middle. And there's so much rider preference. And we also have like a human nature predisposition for reductionism when it comes to fit and geometry and we fixate on individual figures. And it's really easy for a lot of us to forget that those are all dynamic. Chain stay length and reach is, they, they're relative to each other. So for a given rider at a given torso position and comfort level, the optimal front center is not an independent variable. The optimal front center is relative to the stack height and the chainstay length and how that informs front rear wheel bias. So um, it's definitely a, every case is special, I think, when you're trying to get the best fit on a mountain bike, what the application is, depending on those categories that, that you outline and how, where the rider's comfort is 
either based on what they want to do and the bike's not doing, um, and also based on just what they're what they've adapted to already. Um, and we're, you know, in the geometry part of it, you know, where you said you're you're really accurate as far as that enduro longer lower slacker is informing all categories of mountain bikes and there are some things that are compromising performance um, in production bikes and speculation from editors and riders when we spend too much time looking independently at any of those geometry figures you know whether that's you know head angle or bottom bracket to front axle you know that front center number or the reach number or the chain stay number or the seat tube angle and position to the bottom bracket of the saddle um you know one thing that's having like you've probably seen what's happening in that you know enduro category with seat tube angles that they're yeah. getting just steeper and steeper, steeper and, and steeper, steeper. And steeper yeah so that has to do with a handful of different things. I think the biggest is that when you have that much travel on a bike and you go from your, your suspension setting position where you've set the front and rear sag, whatever that is between usually between 20 and 30% with the fork and the shock. And then you start to climb a hill and you go to 30%. Well, you actually have a 30% change in that relationship between the sag of the front and the rear. You have the same thing when you're descending. Right. So that slackens effectively the seat tube angle when you're climbing on a long travel bike right. a ton. So that's one of the things that's driving the steep seat tube angles. Another, th another couple of things that are driving seat tube, steep seat tube angles are chain stay, the, the philosophy that chain stay should be as short as possible. And you can't make a bike too long which is we're starting to get to the point where we realize <laughs> that's not the case. Right. So that longer and slacker that moves the front out so much, the steep seat tube angle is not just a reaction to more travel and sagging into the rear more than the front, but also that long front center. And, and um, maybe it's too long and you're accommodating a bike that's too long by just pushing your seat forward. Mm. So, Top, right. top, top tube links, effective top tube links, reach numbers, front centers have grown so much over the last 10 years. And there still seems to be a pretty consistent value in the marketplace, whether that's magazines or editors or, or consumers, that longer is just better. Right. And of course, philosophically, that's obviously not true. You know, it can get so long that there's all kinds of compromises. Now, it might do that that inflation of long fronts of bikes ends up being if it's too long for an overall ride a rideable bike, a trail bike that you want to climb and you want to descend and you want to be able to do everything. But it is usually pretty good on really, really steep terrain. And what I find is that riders generally evaluate the capability of a bike on the scariest part the of their favorite loop on the extremes. That's a really good point. I think you're right. People, they immediately go to like the, Oh shit moment. 
of yeah. either going up or down. And right. they go, well, how will the bike perform that? You're right. You're absolutely right. Yeah. And so that's 1% of their ride, but because it's the 1% of their ride that they fixate on or they're white knuckled on, mm -hmm. or they're not cleaning on the climb, they kind of evaluate hundred percent of the bike based on 1% of the terrain. Yep. So there's so many human factors in, in geometry design and bikes, and it's, it's really complex. And so when you get into the minutia of debating, like what's the best head tube angle or what's the best chainstay length, like it's kind of completely irrelevant when you talk about those, those factors independently, people's bodies adapt to making power in really bizarre ways too. I mean, you look way back in our history when we started riding and you think about like road position differences between Alexi who had back problems and, and had these really weird steep seat tube angle bikes yeah. custom made for him Yep, and made, made pretty good power. Right. And that, and then and the contrary to that would be like Phil, Phil Anderson's experimental bikes. Yeah. Or Steve Bowers, the or ones. Steve Bauer. That's yeah. who I'm thinking of. Steve yeah. Bauer. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And the the spectrum of stuff that you can make work is super broad, but then tuning it really well to an individual, then that's a, a lot of art with the science. That's a great point. Um, the, the paradox or the extremes between Alexi, who I think had an 86 degree C2 angle or something along those lines, uh, Alexi Graywall, he was the 84 Olympic gold medal medalist in the road race in LA. And yeah, I, th I think it was around that range. And then Steve Bowers bikes were, I think his seat angles were, if I remember right, they were like basically modern mountain bike head angles. They were like mid sixties, like high 60s it was basically a recumbent right yeah it was it was crazy how far back he was behind the bottom bracket like he talked about yeah. in the interviews about people laughing at him on the start line and stuff and this is at the start line of perry roubaix you know yeah <laughs> and and so we're we're debating yeah whether a bike has a chainstay that's five or ten or 15 millimeters longer or shorter than one another and it's like i think you're you're absolutely right i mean it also reminds me of your our first interview we did where you described working with the guy who I believe founded Yeti and you went to him after riding his bikes for a season or two and said, I want a top tube. That's, I think you said 50 millimeters longer, right? Yeah. Because... That was Doug Bradbury who founded Manitou. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. And right. That was it, because bikes were just basically road bikes back then. And people yeah. you were starting to figure out what worked and what didn't. And you were like, we need a much longer front center. I want this thing to be way more stable and a shorter stem. At that point, a short stem was a 120. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> and I'm sure you would agree that, you know, bikes are more stable and safer now, but also a good pilot can make a lot of different things work, right? That's the, yeah, one of the end takeaways. Yeah. And understanding like what the geometry is doing and what you can do to balance that out with your body position and things like that. Yes. So for mountain bikes, I think you start with like a, like a torso, an upper body position that's comfortable. The rider's like, I want to ride here. And so that might be a 45 degree back angle, or it might be, you know, a lot more or a lot less than that based on what, just what they're comfortable with or biomechanical issues with their back or whatever. And then you start looking at geometry around that. 
Um, obviously, if you're if you ride a more upright torso position, a shorter bike is going to accommodate an ideal front and rear tire weight bias. Right. If you ride a really low position like you do, mm -hmm. then a longer bike is going to accommodate the ideal front rear tire weight bias. Um, and that's another thing that you can't say, oh, it's exactly 50, 50 or 45, 55 right. percent distribution because it's a little different for everybody. But right now with modern trail bikes and enduro bikes, we're moving that more towards the rear wheel with the long front centers and uh, an allergy to longer chain stays. <laughs> um, and as travel continues to go up too, so that stack height and your hand position over the front yep. reduces the amount that you can weight the front wheel too. So mm -hmm. some people are super good at accommodating that by just really riding like a moto when you have to corner on a flat corner instead of a steep downhill corner mm -hmm. and they transfer that weight onto it. Yeah. Some people who can't make that, you know, biomechanical adjustment, the bike just steers really good in one condition and terrible in another condition. Yeah. That's a great point. I think maybe I, I, well, I'm sure that I see my mountain biking personally through a kind of road bias in the mm -hmm. sense that I'm used to being in a pretty, you know, aero road position with a more closer to a horizontal torso. That's the way I've always ridden. So when I get on a mountain bike, that's so upright, I really am challenged to weight the front wheel enough. It just doesn't feel natural to me. Right. Maybe if I grew up racing motos or BMX, I'd be just more adapted to that sensation. But right. I think I, I translate that to most of my roadies when I'm fitting them on a mountain bike, I kind of make a basic assumption that they're not going to weight the bar well enough or heavy enough if their bars are too high. And I also think that a lot of people end up with a bar that's same thing. Like you said, people think about the 1% of their ride, the part where they were white knuckled and they remember that time they went over the front end cause their bars got too, you know, they were, they felt like the bars were too low in reality. Probably their weight distribution wasn't right when they went over that drop, they weren't far enough back or they weren't using their yeah. dropper. Or maybe or they didn't have a dropper. Completely, maybe a completely independent technique issue. Yeah. You know, like yeah. it's a little wheelie dropping just didn't get the front end up enough up yep but then you know because of that traumatic experience then they're like well i want my bars higher exactly so i yeah. can avoid that same crash again mm -hmm. or i want the front end the way up further out so i don't i can avoid that crash again and they end up unconsciously compromising the performance for the other 99 yeah. percent of their ride exactly where you know it's probably in most cases better for the rider to figure out the technique for the 1% of the ride. So yes. your bike performs optimally on the 99% of the ride. Exactly. An answer to give to your previous interview. but <laughs> Well, it's just like anything, right? When you dig deeper, you find out how much you don't know and how every case is individual. I mean, yeah. you can say the same thing. We have guiding principles or theories or philosophies about road bike fit, time trial bike fit, mountain bike fit. But the bottom line is, I mean, this is the fundamental challenge with a system of fitting, you know, that system can put you on the right path and give you momentum to help you figure out what a rider needs. But if you rely on the system to make all the decisions, inevitably you're making, you're evaluating an individual against a bell curve. And that's, I think where it falls apart. So there's this fine mm -hmm. balance between using data to help inform you and guide you, but not to, not to necessarily put the individual into 
you know, the middle of a bell curve or the end of a bell curve. It's like, we have to treat everyone as a fingerprint and say, oh, you know, this doesn't work for this person. So how do we figure out, how do we solve the problem? You got to think critically. In the case of, of being a coach and a fitter, if you're familiar with your athletes, cause you're riding with them a lot, mm. then you already have in your mind a, a profile, like this individual, you know, is uncomfortable in cornering and has this counterproductive tendency to like get way back when they feel uncomfortable, mm -hmm. which is almost opposite of what you want to do. Right. So there's a, there's a recipe for improving the handling for that person. That's different than a person who's aggressive and rides the front heavy and is having a different issue. When you spend a lot of time trying to figure things out like this, and you know, like different riding styles, you can just watch somebody ride up a hill, down a hill and corner. Yes. And that, that immediately builds a framework for like, all right, we need to look at this. We need to look at this. We need to look at this, Yeah. you know, start there. We'll see how that, is that an improvement? Does the rider notice mm -hmm. really clear improvements when we adjust those three things and then go to, you to know, another trial loop or minutia afterwards? Yeah. That's interesting. That just made me think of something when you said that it's like, we're looking at, okay, thinking about road bike fit, you put someone, take their road bike, put it in a trainer, have a ride. I film them from all sides. I look at them from all angles. I make measurements of the bike, et cetera. Ostensibly riding on a road bike outdoors and putting it on a trainer, there's probably a Delta of a given distance between what they're doing indoors on a trainer when they're being watched and what they're actually doing outdoors. Yeah. The challenge with mountain bike fitting, I would say another one is that the Delta between how a rider rides a mountain bike on a trainer and in an actual, on an actual trail, a single track, you know, is going to be a bit, much bigger Delta, obviously, because the bike is completely fixed on a trainer or even in my fit studio, I use a platform that moves. It's a Saris platform that moves fore and aft and wobbles side to side. So I've got a tiny uh -huh. bit of movement there, but obviously it's still not going down, you know, a bunch of giant Jeep road with a bunch of baby heads all over it and roots and stuff. So how does that rider change their weight distribution on a mountain bike? The Delta is going to be much bigger real world to a fit lab on a mountain bike and probably like most things gravel cross or somewhere in the middle. So that's a challenge for a fitter is kind of seeing through those lenses and seeing through those layers of detail to understand what kind of rider you have. And then also what kind of trails they're riding, right? What kind of terrain are you riding? Are you comfortable on really steep stuff? Are you a super aggressive rider? Limits of fitting, I guess, I suppose the other, you know, it definitely, um, catalyzed a couple thoughts on my own. When you said you're having a challenge with the coach and fitter mm -hmm. on, you know, making, you know, coming up with a science for mountain bike fit. Mm. Um, and you know, you and I have talked about this over and over how complex it is yeah, and how many unknowns are still out there in particular with the way the fashion of geometry is evolving so quickly yeah. really over the last 10 years. Yeah. One of the challenges being that if you want to get a rider further back over the bottom bracket to have better power production and they have a dropper, you're, your choices to get a dropper with an offset head are pretty slim, right? Fast majority of droppers yeah. are zero offset posts. Yeah. So. Um, and that's something that's kind of a solution to have more adjustment in the head or a reversible head without it looking odd. Right. You know, just the seat tube angle, like I said, you know, we're talking a lot about seat tube angle, 
And a lot of the problems that we're having with C2 bangles now could be addressed with either different front centers or different chainstay links or different, you know, yeah. different shock technologies. We, we developed a, um, as part of our dual chamber rear shocks, um, a release for the secondary chamber for climbing, which mm. we called active climb, which we never put into production. Mm. And uh, it basically just, you have, there was a lever where you could release that charge into the mainspring and it would reduce sag by about 10%. Ah. When you climb, so yes. you flip that lever. Yeah. And it didn't stiffen the suspension, but it, oh. well, it, it, it did increase the spring rate but it wasn't like adding a compression threshold with the hydraulic system. Right. It was right, all right. with the spring. Right. So, okay. I just want to unpack that. So that people are clear what we're talking about. So if you visualize most, almost all rear suspension bikes in modern world, when you, when you sit on it, you sit on the front, you sit on the bike when it's static and level, both front and rear suspension will sag about 30%, like you were saying. But if we put you on a big, steep uphill, like a 40% grade, now all the sag happens in the rear suspension. Yeah. And so if you had set it up at 30, 30 on the flat, yeah. when you go to a 20% hill, it's going to go to like 20, 40. Right. And so as you that set happens, it up 20, 40 on, this, on the level, that person's going to feel super awkward and be like, I need to move my seat forward. Right. So, well, that's the issue is when the sag is 30, 30, the saddle offset will change a little bit from a static measurement. So if your saddle offset, that's the tip of the saddle behind the bottom bracket is we'll say 50 millimeters just to take a simple number. And then you sag the bike. When the suspension sags, the rear saddle offset changes from the bottom bracket. It increases. So if we have maybe five or 10 millimeters of saddle offset increase when the bike is level, that might be acceptable and that might be a good target. So let's say we're targeting 60 millimeters, but the problem is when someone goes up a really steep grade and the relationship between the front and rear sag changes, then their offset and the saddle can go to 80, 90 millimeters. And then they wonder why. So we've got all these conditions that lead to really for a lot of riders that manifest as lower back pain because we've got a wider Q factor. A lot of the time, sometimes we've got a longer crank length when they don't really need it, or it really isn't optimal. And then we've got this high torque situation where they're going up this steep hill and they've got too much saddle offset. Their saddle's too far behind the bottom bracket. Right. And then they go, why does my lower back hurt all the time when I'm riding my mountain bike? And that's the formula right there. It's kind of all those things combined. And so we, so that's what we're trying to address is that relationship of change. And that's where you have to use a little bit of fitting crystal ball and say, okay, does this rider have a history of back pain? How much are we going to put the saddle forward on the flats to compensate for those steep climbs? And so, you know, there's compromise inherent in that yeah. best case solution Yeah, based on you're riding a bike that you're going to climb stuff steep and you're going to descend stuff that's steep and you're going to also ride it on the flats. Right. But I, so I think the takeaway here is maybe is that for fitters and coaches, it can be seemingly an overwhelming problem where you go, I don't know what to do because the rider's moving all the time. Well, that's, that's true. The rider is moving. They're moving around on the saddle. The saddle's being dropped down for descents, et cetera. And the relationship between front and rear sag is changing, but that doesn't mean we don't actually target some sort of baseline for their offset to be in one place most of the time. And then the other thing I'll say is there are many aspects of fitting that are pretty fixed, especially road bike. For example, I'll have a given height that I 
pretty much recommend a rider goes out the door with. There are other aspects of fit that are contingent upon trial and error feedback. So mountain bike handlebar height is a great example for that. So I'll Mm -hmm. kind of coach a rider. I'll say, okay, if you're using the right technique on a descent, you've got your weight in the right place. This bar height I expect will work for you, but I want you to go try some trials and ride it a few times and see what happens. And it's really easy for you to take an Allen key and put a 10 mil spacer under that stem or take a 10 mil spacer out and do the same descent. That's maybe five, eight minutes long. And it's got a good mixture of terrain. It's got some kitty litter and some baby heads and some few drops and a few logs. You know, you want something ideally, it's got a little bit of everything and you coach the rider through, try this, see how the bike responds, make sure you're in the right place. Use, you know, you get, make sure their techniques down and then ask them to come back with you with feedback and say, okay, I decided that the drop bar was better and here's why, or Oh, I tried the drop a couple of times. I really didn't like it over this log. You know, even though I was in the right place and I was using the dropper and I was down and back and my weight was on my feet and my elbows were wide and I was anticipating things, I still felt like I was going to go over the bars. We say, okay, that's fine for you. In that case, maybe the bar needs to be a touch higher, right? Does that mm-hmm. make sense? Yeah. But then another solution to, to get back to that optimal cornering traction with the front wheel, if that's where they want their bars for comfort, would be a smaller frame. Right. Great point. Because then you would you would transfer a little bit more weight onto the front wheel. Right. I hope everybody's crystal clear slash totally confused. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and pro- probably I mean probably in most cases initially it it brings up more questions than it answers. Mm-hmm. But it you know otherwise you're kind of throwing darts. Yes. It's a it's an unproductive um, process to to insulate and look at different factors separately. Yep. As you said at the beginning, we tend to focus on one single geometry number, C2 angle, but they're all related. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a rider who really struggles to make power and my mountain bike if I don't have enough saddle offset. So I'm frequently pushing the saddle back to the limits on the rails. Um, this is another tidy reason why I like to recommend SMP saddles in particular, because they have really long rails. Some saddle manufacturers use shorter rails, like um, WTB is a, a saddle manufacturer that makes some reasonable shaped saddles, but the rails are super short, so you don't have a big range of fore-aft adjustment. And another complication to that is if you want to use a dropper post, the majority of all dropper posts do not have an offset head. So you're kind of stuck a little bit. Sometimes riders come in for a fit and I want to push their saddle back. I can see they're just way forward over the bottom bracket and to the point where they're sacrificing the the lever of the femur, right? There's this point in the pedal stroke when your foot is at three o'clock, meaning the crank arm is pointed straight forward towards the front hub. You want that moment of leverage. And to do that, we need to take advantage of that femur. And if that femur is too far forward, then your knees way out over the foot. You just don't have the leverage to use the glute at that moment of peak force. And we can just see that clearly. So especially for women who have women on average statistically have longer femurs relative to men when we're talking about the comparison of the the femur to tibia ratio. And so women, a lot of women really need that saddle to be pushed back. And so they can be struggling, they can be on the struggle bus to get their saddle in the right position. Does that make sense? It does. And as you know, so, so many things as you're talking, I'm kind of coming to mind, but just in terms of, you know, the inability to, to get the rider really where like what you would consider more of that quote neutral fit 
uh, over the bottom bracket for aft. I mean, what is reasonable? What's like, what's like the concession you make? Like what is an okay, like, like forward, um, like what would be acceptable, I guess. Like, and I guess I think too about, you know, you brought this up, like mountain bikers are under so much more torque when they ride and, you know, maintaining, and I know people don't like talking so much about injury prevention because it's not as like exciting and sexy as like power production, but like keeping the knee safe and healthy. And if, you know, you're too far forward and you're, you know, pushing like this big gears, it's slow cadence. And so what's acceptable for you, like in terms of these geometries and not really being able to get the rider back to that more ideal position, like what's acceptable with knee over like the end of the crank arm or however you measure that. Right. So yeah. So some of that discussion depends a little bit on which type of mountain bike we're talking about and what the rider's goals are, right. Or back to physiology, of the rider versus demands of their event. So on the physiology side, we have to look at, does the rider have a history of knee injuries? Do they have a history of particularly knee injuries around the patella or the front side, the anterior capsule of the knee. And when you push the saddle forward, you tend to be more push the rider into quad dominance or encourage quad dominance during their pedaling style. And you also, so that puts more shearing force on the patella. And then just as you said, during a mountain bike ride or race, we tend to have a lower cadence and we tend to be in a more torque intensive type of riding style because you're going up steep climbs and the mountain bike's heavier and everything's happening at lower speed. So all that encourages higher moments of torque, even if it's just accelerating at the bottom of a steep climb. And then to confound that variable, we have an increased Q factor on most mountain bikes. So we've got a wider stance between your feet and most mountain bikes by default are set up for some reason, manufacturers are not as good about putting different length cranks or even size appropriate crank lengths per frame size on mountain bikes. They tend to err on the longer side. So for someone who's on a, say, medium-sized mountain bike, on a road bike, we would commonly see 172.5s. On a mountain bike, we would commonly see spec 175s. So you gain this two and a half millimeters of crank. And that's sort of been industry standard for a while. I think the logic is, oh, you know, you're pedaling with a lower cadence and higher torque, so that extra crank will only help you. But if someone's got a history of knee injury, especially if you've got patellar stuff going on, if you've had patellar bursitis, or if you've had chronic patellar tracking issues, or if you've had any kind of orthoscopic surgery around that area, or you've just got a history of kind of whenever I push it, my patella tends to hurt a little bit, going to a longer crank is probably going to make those issues worse. Because as we increase crank length, we increase patellar shear, right? Which is just the amount of force the patella has, the strain on the patella as it's as the knee is flexing and extending, that patella, which is your kneecap, and the patellar tendons, there's a lot more force. Um, how do I describe this? It's like the patella is being kind of pushed into, it's as if you took your hand and pushed hard on your patella and then did a bunch of squats. Pushed hard, um, just smashing down on your patella, I guess would be the way I would describe it. And then did a bunch of squats. You can maybe get an instinct for how over time that would start to irritate that joint. We want the patella to glide smoothly through this track and not have a lot of tension one side or the other. So the longer the crank is, the more we're going to increase the possibility of that happening. So what is an acceptable amount of 
increase in saddle offset or decrease, I'll say increase meaning more saddle offset. What is an acceptable amount of decrease in saddle offset going from road to mountain? In general, we want to compress the cockpit of the mountain bike a bit. What do I mean by that? I mean that we want to, when again, using road as a reference, if we have a given distance from the tip of the saddle to the center of the handlebars, and that distance will not just include horizontal distance, but in my example, also the vertical drop of the handlebars. So if you have somebody in an aggressive road position, their saddle slam back behind the bottom bracket a certain amount, and their bars are also a certain amount far away from that tip of that saddle, a certain distance away from the tip of that saddle, and the bars are dropped down because part of the demands of road cycling are, of course, to be aerodynamic. And when we do those higher speed descents, you want to be long and low over that wheelbase like we talked about. On a mountain bike, we have to compress that cockpit a bit. Why? Because if your bars are too far away from you, when you're in the saddle, it becomes far more difficult to engage the body English we want to use when we are negotiating steep uphills and downhills on a mountain bike, steeper grades over loose terrain and also, it becomes more difficult to use the body English we need during even flowy medium speed trails. So imagine if you've got a local trail. I know you've got a ton of this stuff in Tahoe, Julie. I've, I've had the opportunity to race there when I was coaching CU collegiately, and I took my own bike and did some riding around there. And you guys have amazing single track trails that just go forever. And so we're talking about trails where you're going 30, 40K an hour over single track that's relatively smooth and flowy as an example. And you could go really fast over this stuff, but the key is to lean the bike with a greater lean angle than your body. And in order to do that, you have to detach, air quotes, detach your center of gravity, which is right around just behind your belly button, just below that, or really where your Don Tien is. We have to detach that center of gravity from the bottom bracket. When we're, when we're cornering in a, in a road criterium or on a road bike, even a road descent, when we lean the body, we lean the bicycle and everything stays in a tidy line. There are two lines. One is from the bottom bracket through the seat tube and up through the seat post. The second is from your pelvic floor up through your sternum. When we're on a mountain bike, we want to detach those two lines. We want the bottom bracket seat tube line to lean further inside than the line between your pelvic floor and your sternum. In order to do that, we can't have the bars be too far away and too low because this requires a lot of, I'll say, body English. You have to push down hard on the inside handlebar and let the bike carve through the corner. So it's a different technique on a mountain bike. Our center of gravity becomes a little bit disconnected from the angle of the seat tube. That's how I think about it. And that's a really... That can be a very challenging skill for a rider to master when they're used to cornering on a road bike. It, take, it can be very unnatural at first, but once you get it, you realize that it really opens up a universe of handling that is far more secure and far safer. So more fun and more safety. Win, win. When we compress the cockpit, what we're doing is we're making the distance from that saddle to that handlebar a little bit less. And how much a little bit less? Well, I can't give hard rules, but I can say a little bit. So if your distance from the tip of the saddle to the center of your handlebars on your road bike is, I'll just throw out some numbers to give people some ideas. 
if it's 58 centimeters, which would be kind of around a medium or large size frame for most riders, we're talking two to three centimeters less distance, approximately. If we're, so if you're more um, on your size bike, Julie, I'm imagining you ride a small in most mountain bikes, maybe an XS, depending. Ooh, I think X, X XS. Small. So your tip of saddle to center of handlebars on your road bike, I would guess would be around 50 to 53 centimeters, somewhere in that range. We would take off about, again, probably two or three centimeters, and we would have your bars be about two or three centimeters higher. Now, when we get into suspension though, that gets really confusing really quickly, or it's actually not confusing. We just have to account for the suspension in the sag. So if your saddle offset on your road bike is, we'll say, I'll take a guess and say yours is around 50, 55 millimeters. Then on your mountain bike, ideally for you, because you've got a history as a world level rider, I know that you generate power from sitting back in the saddle and you're a climber, then we're not going to want you to push you too far over the bottom bracket. You're probably going to feel like you just can't make power. Also, you're participating in other sports like skiing and running. So you've got good capacity to engage the posterior chain while making power. And you're going to feel that lack of power. If we push you too far forward, you're going to feel that quad dominance most likely. So in your case, we would try to maintain that same saddle offset, but on an extra small mountain bike, I'd be a little surprised if we could get you there. I would guess that we might be able to get you to 35 mils roughly on a hardtail, And Sometimes we have to accept that there are limitations to what we can do in bike fitting. There might be an ideal position for a rider, but if we can only get them on a certain type of seat post, and this is the saddle that absolutely they're in love with and works best for them, but the rails aren't that long and we've got them slammed all the way back. We just have to say, we, we got you as close as we can get you and we have to work around it as best we can. In other cases, when the person's really far off, or if you try that and they say, man, I just feel a total lack of power. I can tell that I want to be in the back seat more. I'm always trying to slide back more on my saddle. When I get on my road bike, I make great seated power. When I get on my mountain bike, I feel like I just, all that goes out the window. Then we say, we got to push the envelope and say, okay, we got to consider finding you a saddle with a little bit longer rails so that we can push you back and see if we can find a model that works for you. Or we're going to find there, we're going to find you a dropper post with a little bit of an offset head. There are a couple manufacturers that do make offset dropper posts. Uh, KS is one I know of. So we'll drop a couple of examples in the show notes, but basically you're doing what I'm doing, which is consulting the search engines of the world and seeing what comes up. So we accept that there are some limitations to this, to a conventional frame design. If we're going to go with a manufacturer like Trek or whomever who makes these mount bikes and the trend is towards steeper C-tube angles. And most of the time we can make it work close enough. Um, I think another confounding variable clearly is rear suspension, right? So when things, when we're fitting someone to a hardtail, this is pretty cut and dried. But when we get into real suspension, rear suspension changes as the suspension sags and depending on what setting you're using. How do I solve this problem as a fitter? I take multiple measurements under different conditions and I see what changes. So first I measure the bike statically with no weight on it. And 
it doesn't really matter if the suspension is locked or unlocked at that point. You're just getting a baseline. And then we can see. So if somebody's road bike saddle offset is 70 millimeters and statically their dual suspension mountain bike is set at 70 millimeters the same, then we know that when they sit on it and they sag the suspension in most suspension designs, as you sit on the saddle, saddle offset increases. And we want to be wary of this because I don't want someone ostensibly someone set pretty far back at 70 millimeters on the road bike. I don't want them riding around at 95 when their suspension is sagging or 85 on their mountain bike. How do you know how much it sags? Well, you put the bike in the trainer, make it level and have them sit on it and have them sag the suspension. And then you measure the offset while they're seated in the saddle. This is a little bit delicate. First of all, because you're putting a ruler at the nose of the saddle, which is basically don't hit your client in the crotch. But secondly, you have to have them sag the suspension kind of neutral sagged, get on it and make sure it's active, but not compress too much one or the other. You don't want them unweighting the bars too much and then increasing the sag in the rear suspension too much or vice versa. You also want to see them sag both front and rear, kind of an appropriate amount. You're trying to get some sort of baseline. And then you have to use your crystal ball as a fitter a little bit and imagine how much this is going to change when they are using, if they're using the bike in a, it's common for most suspension systems to have a locked, a trail and a downhill setting or a, a locked out and a medium and a high suspension setting, you could call it. So I use the medium as a baseline because most of the time when they're unlocked and they're using downhill, they're not in a saddle. But there are multiple times when someone might use the trail setting and be there for quite a while on some really technical rides. And on those occasions, we don't want them sagging way behind the bottom bracket, especially on a technical climb where they're trying to maintain traction and keep that suspension in a medium position. Then, so if they're on a steep grade, then they're going to be weight biased towards the rear wheel. And the suspension is going to, sag is going to increase. So now now we've gone from 70 mils in our example to maybe 105. And then they're wondering why their back hurts all the time on the mountain bike. Well, we've got all these things that point them towards potentially having their back hurt. We've got longer cranks sometimes, a wider Q factor, which they could not be adapted to. And now their saddle normally on the road bike is at 70 mils behind the BB. And now it's at 105. And that's not uncommon. So... How's that? Does that all make sense? <laughs> that does make sense. <laughs> um, you know, as, as you're talking, so many things come to mind. And, and I, f- I feel like in some ways we've kind of thrown the baby out with the bathwater with mm-hmm. like the mountain bikes. And, you know, you had said this, that like it's kind of all biasing towards handling. And I feel like mm. for the cross country rider, they're not gravity athletes. And so they, they need to obviously you know, be able to still produce good power and safely produce that power. And, you know, just watching like the world cup, you see the trend, like to your point, the cockpits become really tight and short. Mm-hmm. And I, I just wonder sometimes, you know, just even seeing these men and women when they're climbing really upright torsos. And what I've learned is you need that, that 
torso tilt in order to better activate the glutes. And, yes. and, and I know they can do that. And I understand that that's a reason why we've gone with the wider bars. So you can basically get in that low position, but I still, it still seems like mm. many are just, you know, pedaling in this upright position. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think also it's super interesting what you pointed out when you need to think of the, like the spectrum that a mountain bike needs to cover in terms of its like its requirements, mm-hmm. like, like all those things you pointed out, it's amazing. Like mm-hmm. the big spectrum that it needs to, to fulfill. Um, and I do, I guess, think also that, you know, we do have the ability to get out of the saddle and like most of the time descending. So that kind of creates some, some versatility to the position that, yeah. you know, you can get out of the saddle and really get that weight centered through the, through the feet um, to, to, have the bike handle the way you want to. So it, to me, it almost creates like two different scenarios, one, one in the saddle and, and pedaling, and then one out of the saddle for more of the handling part. Yes. Um, agreed. That said, there are times when you have to handle the bike where you're in the saddle or we'll say floating over the saddle. Mm-hmm. And you know, that also comes back to whether a rider has a dropper. Um, a dropper post is obviously a huge it's a huge step forward in handling on mountain bikes. People tend to think of droppers as being only applicable to really steep, rocky descents or descents with big drops. And those are definitely places for droppers. Droppers make you primarily safer on those descents, especially for someone who's just learning how to use one. Over time, you can you learn you can go a lot faster with a dropper because the saddle, in case people don't know, when you put a dropper seat post on a mountain bike, when you're on a steep descent, you want to assume what we could commonly call the attack position. This is using borrowing terminology from Lee McCormick's book, uh, which I believe is called how to mastering mountain bike skills. And Lee's a local coach here in Colorado and he coaches a lot of clinics and things at the Valmont bike park and other places. And he talks about this attack position. And what does that mean? It means when you're descending, you've got your butt as far back and down as you can get it. Elbows are wide to give a stable base to control the bars. And you're looking ahead. That's a really important point because it's easy for us to have our gaze be, you know, just a couple, a little ways in front of the front axle when you're climbing on an uphill trail because you're going so slowly. And you have to sometimes even consciously make yourself look further down the trail to anticipate things coming at you much more quickly when your speed changes a lot when you're going downhill. So he talks about all these things. Well, the number one thing is weight on the feet and getting your weight, your butt down and back so that your weight is stable so that your, your center gravity is further back and down behind the bottom bracket so that when you're on steep terrain, it avoids the possibility of you going over the bars or minimizes the possibility of you going over the front of the bike. And the, when you have a dropper post, that greatly increases the ability to assume that attack position because when you try to put your butt down and back, without a dropper post, there's a saddle in your way. It's hitting you in the belly button. So when you can drop that post out of the way, it makes a massive difference, but it also can be quite useful on flowy medium speed trails. When you drop that post, then you can go back to that body English where you are increasing the lean angle of the bike relative to the angle of your torso. You're pushing the bike down and far farther away from you. So thinking to your comment just a moment ago, Julie, about the spectrum of mountain bikes and what they're used for. Let's define that. So on the top end of the spectrum, the most road-like aspect of mountain bike demand, uh, events that we can think of is probably a short track. It's about 20 to 30, maybe 35 minutes in some cases. And it's basically a dirt criterium. The courses are short. There's you, There are usually lots of laps. 
there typically aren't that steep uphills or downhills because the courses are so short. We're talking minute to two minute laps, you know, in a bike park situation or a town loop situation. That's a common short track scenario. And this is the discipline that would require the most road-like mountain bike setup. You're having short, explosive power scenarios out of the saddle and in the saddle. We don't need a dropper post probably because there aren't steep downhills. And the it's it's like a disintegrating peloton type of criterium sort of situation with lots of short anaerobic work, explosive type efforts. Next, we would have a typical cross-country race. This could be anywhere from 60 minutes to 120 minutes in length, depending. After that would be endurance cross-country. We're talking three to maybe 10 hours or mountain bike stage races, right? This is 100K mountain bike events, 100-mile mountain bike events, things like that. And then we get further down the spectrum, more towards the other end of mountain biking. The next phase would be enduro racing, which is a staged event that can happen with timed sections. So it might be four hours of riding, for example, in a single enduro stage, but you're only timed over different segments of that four hour route. And the, the segments might range in length from 10 minutes to half an hour would be typical. And those segments will include some climbing and almost always descending. So you're racing up and down. So you are required to make power on the climbing segments, but really depending on the terrain and, and the philosophy of the race, many enduro races really emphasize handling skills and the descents can be quite technical. So there you're looking at more of an all mountain type of bike, something that can handle real descending. And this to transition to enduro racing from most, from a cross country racer, somebody who's more road oriented and also races cross country, it's a big jump to go to enduro. And then from there we have downhill and its various subdisciplines. And downhill proper downhill mountain biking is very far removed from the physiology of setting up a bike to make power. That's the point where you pretty much set up the bike to be safe and go fast downhill and you almost ignore power output. Enduro is the cross section where you still have to account for some power output. And this is, I think, exactly the cross section of where we're at is many cross country bikes are bordering on becoming enduro bikes. The geometry is trending towards that area. And I agree with you, Julie, that's, that's problematic for us as fitters and as coaches, because we want to set up a bike so that someone makes good power and some of these bikes that are being purchased and used for cross country are really more suited to enduro or even light downhill use. And that is a, that's a challenge for us as a fitter uh, and as a coach, because we want to see riders making good power. So, you know, there are perspectives where we have to accept that there are limitations to, to what we can do in the world of mechanical bike fit. Sometimes you want to put your, your athletes cleats in a certain place and the shoes and pedals don't go there. And your choice is to either break out the drill and, and go to town. And sometimes that's not even an option. So it is what it is. How about saddle hike from road to mountain bike and talking yep. more, if we just talk about cross country riders in general, I would shoot for the same leg extension at the bottom of the stroke. If your rider is on a longer crank on the mountain bike, that means we have to lower the saddle by the same amount. So if they're on one seventies on the road bike and they're on one seventy fives on their mountain bike, we would lower the saddle five millimeters. There are a lot of little confounding variables that can get in the way there. One is, are they on the same saddle on both bikes? You're talking about millimeters and you've got two different saddles. 
you're that gets challenging quickly because when you're talking about different paddings and base shapes and probably possibly widths, then uh, you know measuring saddle height to the millimeter is going to be a starting point. You're going to have to adjust based on feel from there. Uh, perfect world is to have the same saddle on all your bikes. That takes care of that. And if one saddle is ideal for the road bike, then it should be ideal for all their bikes in theory. Uh, the other confounding variables are Q factor. On a Q factor on a mountain bike can be Typical would be about 30 millimeters wider than a road bike Q factor. Just to define it in case people don't know, Q factor is the distance between your feet. So if you imagine doing a squat with your feet at hips width, that would be a given Q factor. Now put another 12 inches, sorry, 20 centimeters on either side. So 40 centimeters wider, that's more of a sumo squat. That would be increasing your Q factor dramatically. That's what happens when you go from a road bike to a mountain bike. It's about... 25 to 40 millimeters is kind of the range depending on what road cranks you have and what mountain bike cranks you have. So typical road cue is around 150 millimeters, typical mountain bike cue factor, 175, 180, 185 millimeters, somewhere in there. So that impacts saddle height. So how much it impacts saddle height, there's no real good way to know that because it doesn't just make your foot wider. You could do a simple trigonometry equation and try to figure it out, but it doesn't quite work that way because human bodies are so complicated. As you push your feet wider, because the foot is still on a horizontal surface, you're effectively increasing the varus wedging of the foot. So it's not one-to-one. So without going down a rabbit hole on foot correction and wedging, basically the answer is you start with about the same amount, and then you're going to have to lower your saddle on your mountain bike a couple of millimeters to account for that wider Q factor for most riders. That's, that's kind of the short answer. Some riders will do better with a wider Q factor. Some will find they prefer a narrower Q factor. If you put a rider on a mountain bike and they've got immediate problems with especially medial knee issues, that's a big warning that that rider needs some mobility work, probably on the, both the medial and lateral aspects of the lower extremities. So foam rolling, stretching, Eldoa, global postural stretching, those are some of the, the powerful tools we have in our network. Um, I, the simple actionable way is I hand my, my, I email my riders a link to the Gator roller, which can be found on road fitness. It's my single most favorite mobility tool. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. Um, if I could have my riders, all my riders have one of those, I would, I recommend that people check it out. It's just, uh, it's one of the best. So Basically, we want to shoot for the same saddle height, but we want to correct for those those parameters. The other confounding variables are the stack height of pedals from road to mountain is different depending on what road pedals you're talking about and what mountain pedals you're talking about. I have a pretty exhaustive list of stack heights that I've researched as best I can find them. Not all of them are published. The other variable that's even harder to know is the stack height of your shoes. If you've got a really low stack height road shoe like a Bont, which is four millimeters, one of the few road shoes that publishes their stack height, and you've got a clunkier mountain bike shoe, and we're not talking about the distance of, we're not talking about the lugs, we're talking about the distance from the cleat through the carbon sole to the bottom of your foot. That's the stack height of the shoe. Uh, Then you're going to have to raise your saddle to account for that higher stack height on the mountain bike shoe. Most shoe manufacturers do not publish their stack height, so you're kind of guessing a little bit. Most of them are probably around the same height. Bonts among the lower ones, around four mils. Specialized in Shimano are probably around four mils or very close. But uh, most mountain bike shoes are probably a little thicker on average. 
Also, don't forget that all specialized shoes are body geometry shoes, which means they include one and a half degrees of medial wedging built into the entire shoe on all their shoes. So that basically assumes that everyone is a pronator, which I know one of your questions was about supination, Julie. Uh, not everyone is a pronator, but that's what specialized shoes assume. So if you're a supinator and you buy specialized shoes, reasonable chance you end up with knee pain right out of the blocks. So if you're riding specialized shoes and you wonder why your knee hurts all, knees hurt all the time, that's a good place to start, a good stone to unturn. So what I'm getting at is you, there's a lot of confounding variables. When you look at the difference in Q factor, the difference in stack height of the pedal, the difference in the stack height of your shoes, and if you have a different saddle, by the time you do all that, you're left with a lot of, hmm, what should my road bike and mountain bike saddle heights be relative to each other? You're definitely plus or minus a few mils on either end. So here's a quick tip to make that actionable. Back-to-back -back comparison is always my way to figure things out whenever you have to rule of thumb it or feel it. So go for a road ride, do your thing. Maybe you go for a road ride for two hours, come home, immediately put on your mountain bike shoes and jump on your mountain bike and just ride for 10 minutes and listen. What does your body tell you? Do you feel more extended at the knee? Do you feel more extended at the bottom of the stroke? Do you feel like you can't drive through the bottom of the stroke at bottom dead center with hamstring? That can help you dial in your saddle height on the mountain bike a little bit. Try that drill a couple times. Also do it in reverse where you ride your mountain bike for a couple hours and then come home and jump on your road bike, change your shoes and go around the block. And that's a good way, once you've started with a baseline of equating the saddle height and measuring it, that's a good way to get things further dialed if you want to make sure that you're in the right ballpark. I love that. That's a great idea. Cool. So with the Q factor, are there options? Like it seems to me pretty limited in terms of trying to mm. narrow that Q factor. And it seems like most mountain bike shoe cleat systems don't allow for much yeah. medial lateral movement of that cleat. Yep. So are, yep. I mean, are there some options? And it, I would say mostly like obviously more in terms of like narrowing that Q factor. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Great question. So there are a couple of ways we could narrow the Q factor if we wanted to do that. One is we can use a shorter pedal axle. We can, we can use the lateral adjustment on mountain bike cleats to get the cleats side to side. Crank Brothers have no lateral adjustment. Speedplay have no lateral adjustment. Speedplay, uh, they make a scissor mountain bike pedal, which some people don't know about. I think it's a really good pedal. Not everyone likes it. It does have some quirks. If you want to check it out, look at James Wong's review on cycling tips about this scissor. He didn't really like it too much. I love it. So there you go. But the scissor has different length axles. They have a 50 and a 55. Confounding variable again in this universe is that Speedplay got bought by Wahoo last year. I've been in touch with them quite a bit. They're currently not making the scissor. You can't get them at the moment, but I have been told that they will be making those in the future. They're one of the best off-road pedals on the market or a really excellent gravel pedal in my opinion. Uh, the reason is they've got a very stable platform and they're the only off-road pedal that you can shim easily. So I'll get into why that is. But before I get there, let's stay on track. Stay out of the weeds, Pierce. So... <laughs> We can shorten the axle of some mountain bike pedals to get the foot closer to the crank arm. And you're right, a typical axle length for a road pedal, for a mountain bike pedal, excuse me, is about 55 millimeters. 
in length and that puts people's feet pretty far out there. And then you're already adding the wider Q factor of a mountain bike crank on top of that. Of course, we have to have a wider Q and a mountain bike crank because we've got clearance problems. We've got a big fat tire in the back and we want more mud clearance on a mountain bike. So that bumps everything out. So the crank arm has to be spaced wider apart to get the cranks to not hit the chain stays. That's why we're at where we're at. There are a few options. Years ago, actually, when SRAM first introduced the XX group, they had three different Q-factor cranks, which was pretty cool. And they were labeled on the side of the crank. If I remember correctly, they had a 164, 176, and like a 180. I'm butchering this a little bit. Anyway, so I don't know that they have all those options still in this modern incarnations of 1x12s. I think they've pared down their crank Q-factor offerings. That was pretty neat when they did it. But most of the time, we're sort of stuck with what we've got. Meaning if you are want to go Shimano XTR, you get one crank length Q and that's it. And their crank, their the Shimano pedals do have a little bit of lateral adjustment to the cleats. However, it can be actually be problematic to use that adjustment. Why? So let's say that you want to, you're on Shimano cleats, which does have lateral adjustment, and you want to move your foot close to the crank arm. This gets into the pedal stability which is why I think the scissors is a good choice. Road pedals have a contact area that enables lateral stability to the foot. So imagine you clip into your road shoes and you try to rock your foot side to side by dropping your big toe down and then dropping your pinky toe down. Everyone follow me? So you're rocking your foot side to side. That is different from the ability to move or adjust your foot angle relative to the top tube, which would mean moving your heel in towards the crank and toe out, or vice versa, moving your toe in and your heel out. For most riders, being able to adjust foot angle relative to the top tube, heel in, toe out, or toe in, heel out, is desirable. For most riders, we want their foot angle to be adjustable on the bike. That's why we have pedals with float in the cleats. We're talking about the blue Shimano cleats, the yellow Shimano cleats. We're talking about speed play pedals, etc. We do not want play in the pronation or supination category of movement. Meaning if you were to try to push your big toe down towards the pedal axle or push your pinky toe down towards the pedal axle, if you clip into your shoes and you can move your foot excessively, really noticeably at all in this plane of motion, that tells you that your cleats need to be replaced or your pedals need to be replaced or both, or your shoes are totally smoked. So, when we use a Shimano mountain bike pedal and we push your foot towards the crank, what we're doing is pushing the cleat outboard all the way towards your pinky toe. The stability of that pedal system in an off-road pedal system is dependent upon the lug contact with the pedal body. So when you look at your mountain bike shoe in the bottom, it's got these lugs and those lugs are a given height. And when you clip into the pedal, those lugs have to engage with the pedal body on either side. And that prevents that pronation or supination, that ability to rotate the foot in that plane that we don't want it to rotate in. So the downside you can see quickly is as the pedals get worn out, or as you go walking around on your mountain bike shoes all the time, you wear those lugs down and you introduce more and more play. If someone's a pronator, they're going to push that first metatarsal or that pink, that big toe down towards the pedal axle. That's what their tendency is to do. Pronation is collapsed towards the midline of the body. And in the foot that manifests as the first metatarsal or big toe or great toe as it's known, pushing down towards the axle. Isn't it a great toe? So mm -hmm. 
when that pronation happens, if the lug isn't there to prevent that foot from dropping in, then the foot rolls in, the ankle collapses, the navicular smashes down, the arch flattens, and then the knee tends to follow. And we get internal rotation of the femur, which pulls on your IT band or your TFL or causes lower back pain or all sorts of other problems, pelvic dumping, loss of core control, etc. goes all the way up the chain. So when someone has a tendency towards pronation, we don't really want the pedal to enable that pronation. And when we push the cleat further outboard, we're taking away a little bit of that stability and moving it towards the lateral side. So what I'm saying is when someone's a pronator, if we push their cleat all the way to the outside of their foot, we're kind of, we're potentially making things worse. So there's a little bit of a negative spiral we can go down in terms of how we adjust that. So how do we get the Q factor narrower? We use shorter axles is the best single way to do it. Assuming you can find them. There are a few aftermarket axles for different pedals. You can find some for Crank Brothers. You can research the Q factors of different cranks and assuming you get clearance and assuming you can get the right chain ring for your 1x12 or your 1x11 or whatever you're using or your 2x and you can make all the front derailleur mechanics work and the, the crank will clear your rear suspension arms, you can sometimes select a crank with a narrower Q. But to be honest, unfortunately, there aren't a lot of great options. I would love to see the mobility work or exercises that you advocate for folks to improve the ability to cope with a wider Q factor. Yes, you bet. Yeah, that, that could be a good video episode. So, well, I can just briefly unpack one of those. If someone's having a big problem with pronation or with the wider Q factor of a mountain bike, and this used to be me, I was totally this, this guy, especially as a junior. I had a tendency towards pronation, a tendency towards internal rotation of the femurs. How do you know if you're a pronator? When you walk around, does your arch smash the ground? Does the orientation of your navicular or your, we'll say, the medial malleolus move inwards? That's your inside ankle bone. When you walk, does your inside ankle bone smash towards the midline of your body or towards your gait? Does your patella point straight ahead or does it point? If you if there were lightsabers coming out of your patellas, <laughs> here's a good example. Would they cross <laughs> in front of your belly button or would they be parallel? Or if you're a supinator, would those lightsabers point off into infinity and make a Y shape? If you're a pronator, your lightsabers are crossing because your patels are kind of pointing facing inwards towards each other. So if you're a pronator and you have this tendency and you want to, uh, you want to be better at being able to make power on your mountain bike or your fat bike, which has an even wider Q factor, fat bike, what Q factors can be 190 millimeters or 200, depending on the crank set. My single best tip for that is a deep squat in a, what I'll call a sumo position. So a deep squat is something you can do on your own. And if you're good at it, when you start with your feet roughly parallel and about shoulders width apart, drop your butt to the ground. Can you touch your butt to the ground with a relatively straight spine and without your heels coming off the ground? This is your natural chair. Can you hang out there and drink coffee? Can you do a five minutes in that position and have a conversation? Can you... Can you do 10 minutes? Kelly Starrett did a 10 minute deep squat challenge. He's done that several times. And he talks about people maintaining that deep squat for 10 minutes a day. This is basic human function. I would argue that 
it's good, essential. You should be able to do a couple push-ups. You should be able to run about three miles without breaking down. You should be able to hang out in a deep squat for at least five minutes, minimum. Hey, Cole, feet are hip width wider, toes out. Yeah, so uh, let's say shoulders width to start. Okay. And roughly parallel or maybe inside edges parallel, which means the outside edges of the feet will be slightly pointed out. That probably works better for most people. And the key is when people get down to the bottom, a lot of times their heels want to come up off the ground. So they're on the balls of their feet. We want you to be able to be completely flat footed with your, we'll call this ass to the grass. Your butt should almost be touching the ground or even in some cases touching the ground. And maybe I'll have Jenna shoot a photo of me doing this and we can just put it in the show notes. Why not? Or and drinking and drinking coffee while you're doing drinking it. coffee. I've already had my coffee for the day, so I'm on water now. But, okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. So this is your deep squat. Now, this is a good basic functional exercise. If you want to expand this to help you with your Q factor, push your feet out another 20 centimeters on the right and 20 centimeters on the left. That's a big gap. In non-relevant units, that's about a foot on each side. So now we've got about, we're definitely way past shoulder width, right? That's a sumo style. And that's a much more challenging exercise that involves opening of the hips and the medial fascia of the knee. Warning, push through discomfort. Do not push through pain on this exercise. Don't hurt yourself. Some people, this will be really challenging, but if you can hang out here for a while and ground in the heels and have a relatively extended spine and not holding yourself up with your hands, then you're in good shape. And that will help you loosen up your hips and loosen up your knees so that you can handle a little bit wider Q factor in that knee flexion and hip flexion. This may be a, a totally different episode, but it, I would be interested to understand, you know, saddle shape and how you, I think we, you know, the, the width is a pretty obvious, but then the shape becomes much more individual in terms of, you know, I would guess the, the individual's normal posture and I think it's pel pelvic design is a tough one to figure out just like externally, but I'd be interested to understand like how you prescribe different saddle shapes. I have spoken um, quite a bit about saddle design and some of my philosophies on choosing a saddle, but I do frequently get questions, how does that change when we're talking about off-road bikes, mountain bikes, gravel bikes, cross bikes? And the big concern people have is knowing that I recommend a saddle with a fair amount of curve to match the curved shape of the ischium. Remember, the ischium are like rocking chair feet, broadly speaking. They're wide in the back and they're curved and then they get narrower as you go towards the front. And so when you put a rocking chair on a hardwood floor, you get one point of contact. That's what allows that curved rocking chair foot to arc back and forth and rock. That's not necessarily desirable on a mountain bike or on any bike. And so what we're doing when we choose a curved saddle is we're curving the floor up to meet the chair, so to speak. That distributes the stress or the weight of the torso, I'll say, over a much greater area. And it also allows for greater foreaft stability and a cradled feel to the pelvis. It also allows us to rotate the pelvis forward into anterior rotation without the sensation of sliding down off the nose of the saddle all the time. You're still supported by that curve. Remember, anterior rotation is 
when you dump your soup on your feet, meaning the pelvis is like a bowl of soup. Think about it like a bowl of soup. And when you rotate the pelvis forward or anteriorly rotate the pelvis, that activates glute, enables better diaphragmatic breathing, stabilizes spine and protects the spine. And so when you tip that pelvis forward, you're pouring the soup out the front and you would pour soup on your feet. That's anterior rotation. Posterior would be the opposite if you were to rotate your pelvis backwards and pour soup out the back and hit yourself in the heels. So I'm generally speaking a fan of curved saddles, road, off-road, gravel, mountain, cross track, because it, the bones don't change just because you got in your mountain bike, you still have curved ischium and we're still supporting for most riders. The method is to support the weight on the ischium. The question I get all the time is, well, how does that work? Because people visualize moving all over their mountain bike saddle more than they do on a road bike. And this is to be frank, one of the things people get lost about with mountain bike fit, they think of mountain bikes positions as much more dynamic. Well, they are, but that doesn't mean you don't make power the same way. And it doesn't mean when you're going up a 20 minute fire road or even a a single track climb, you still want a baseline position to make power. People get really concerned about coming up on the nose of a curved saddle, in particular when they visualize going up a steep climb where you have to bend your elbows and put your nose to your stem in order to keep the front wheel from coming up off the ground and for you to fall over backwards. In order to really have the front wheel come off the ground and for you to flip backwards over the bike, you have to be on a very steep grade Usually when you're on that steep a grade, you're on the verge of losing traction. So it's pretty unlikely, but you still have to, of course, change your weight distribution to enable maintenance of traction on that steep, loose terrain. And that does involve sliding forward on the saddle. The answer is a curved saddle works perfectly well on a mountain bike. It just takes about one ride to get used to it. And the advantage of a curved saddle actually is when you slide forward on that nose and the nose rises away from the bottom bracket, What you're doing is you're keeping your center of gravity vertical over the bottom bracket of the bike. So imagine now the bike has gone from horizontal to a 45 degree angle. And if you stay where you are, your center of gravity, which is right around that belly button, ends up further back behind the bottom bracket. And that's what causes the front wheel to come up. So we want to move forward on the saddle to keep that center of gravity vertical over the bottom bracket of the bike. And when you do that on a curved saddle with a nose that goes up, Instead of moving into underextension of at the knee, which you would do on a flat saddle, now we've further, we've come closer to maintaining the radius of that circle that is made in selecting saddle height because we've increased the height because of that nose ramp. And so what you'll find is you think it's going to be this uncomfortable moment of getting jabbed in the posterior region, the the nether regions we'll say. But in reality, it's not uncomfortable at all. And you find that you've got better power because you're no longer going into underextension of the knee, which is what you're used to. So basically the short answer is if you found a great curved saddle that works on your road bike, try that on your mountain bike first. It should be at roughly the same angle, if not a slightly higher nose angle because you've got less saddle to bar drop because of your compressed cockpit. And then try that for a couple rides and that's your baseline. And for most riders, I find that works really well. It's just getting their head wrapped around it. That makes a ton of sense. Like the idea of the bringing the floor up to the, the curve. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. Interesting to me that flat snub nose saddles have become so popular and it kind of yeah. goes against everything that you're, you're describing here. 
Yeah, it does. Um, for me, flat snub nose saddles are kind of, they're a train wreck. Um, for most riders, I find they really don't, don't work very well. And, and from, if a rider comes from a truly traditional old school saddle, you know, like a flight or a rolls or a concourse or a physique Arione, for example, to use some common examples, and they go to a snub nose saddle, they can have a step forward in comfort and they think they're on the right path. But in my opinion, they've taken one of maybe eight steps to go to a saddle, a curved saddle with a cutout is just a massive increase in comfort and performance for most riders. It's not the solution for every rider, but for my men in particular, it's overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly successful to go to that model of a saddle for women, not as high of numbers, but still we're talking 80 to 90% of women end up on that saddle and love it. Mm. Uh, and that saddle is in particular an SMP. I'll say that, and I'm a dealer for them and it's, I'm not, I'm really not trying to make it an SMP commercial. It's a product that I find just works consistently for most of my riders, not for all my riders. Ultimately, my goal is not to sell a rider a certain saddle. It's to get them on the best saddle for them. And sometimes that saddle can be something quite out of the blue or random. You know, the only rule about saddles is there's no rule about saddles. <laughs> Everyone is unique. God is a novelty generator. Everyone has a fingerprint. Fingerprint. One person's lazy boy is another person's screwdriver in terms of saddle shape. So... Just because your buddy rides this, that, or whatever, there's really no bearing that it's going to work for you. Do you know that what is the philosophy behind the snub nose flat saddle? Like, what's the objective? Well, a flat saddle fundamentally is a is a remnant from an old school line of thought, which is that you want to move fore and aft on a saddle. You want to push back on the climbs and move forward on the rivet on the flats. Or occasionally, I find riders who get that backwards, they push forward on climbs which means they're just going into underextension and quad dominance. And I, I don't think I've ever heard anyone say they push backwards on the flats other than someone who generally makes power in the back seat. So, but that's a relic. You know, there are a hundred Italian wives tales about bike fitting and 94 of them are complete garbage. And <laughs> this is in the complete garbage bin. So a flat saddle doesn't do anyone any favors. It's basically, imagine going to the gym and you're going to give your athlete a, a 12 week strength and conditioning program. And during the first four weeks during adaptation, you know, conventional program, whatever adaptation, hypertrophy, and then strength and power, the first four to six weeks of adaptation. And then another four weeks of hypertrophy, we're going to hold them to a really strict standard on their squat form. Every time they squat, we're going to make sure those knees don't come out over the toes. We're going to make sure they're not having a tendency towards pronation. We're not going to let their knees track medial or inside the foot. We're going to make sure their spine's nice and straight. We're going to make sure they don't go down too low. So they're going past the point of the decoupling of the sacrum and the lumbar spine, otherwise known colloquially in the gym as the butt wink. We're going to ensure all these things. We're going to, we're going to be a really good coach and make sure they've got great form. But then as soon as they get to power the last phase where they've already gained strength, they've already gained muscle size, we're going to not care about form anymore. We're going to let their knees come forward. We're going to let them pronate like crazy. We're going to let them start dumping their pelvis at the bottom and, or not dumping, but re, uh, posteriorly rotating the pelvis and decoupling the lumbar musculature. Because, you know, what's most important at that point during the power phase is that they're doing really quick, strong reps. But who cares about the range of motion? Who cares about their form? This is exactly what you're doing when you allow a rider to come forward to the nose of their saddle during a hard interval. Their butt is coming forward to the bottom bracket. 
that downregulates recruitment of the glute. It increases or upregulates recruitment of posterior of excuse me of anterior chain. Read quads. So you become quad dominant, but you're also not going through the full range of motion. If you if one of the rate limiting factors, Julie, you know this, you're a physiologist. One of the rate limiting factors in athletic performance during maximal efforts is the number of muscle fibers you can recruit. Why would I have an athlete go into a position that by definition allows them to recruit less fibers? Does that make sense? Total, total sense. And I so always, when we, I always wonder about it, Colby, like just watching the world tour. It's like, gosh, every one of those guys, like, I mean, that's maybe an exaggeration, but they're all forward on their saddles. It is a huge trend right now in not all of them. There, there are riders who are riding old school and still have what I consider to be proper form, but there's a big trend towards that right now. And this is, this is a, a confounding variable as a fitter because people look towards pros right. and they assume that that pro is perfectly dialed and that they are the epitome of sports performance and that they're executing things in the most ideal position. And you and I both know from being paid to ride our bikes that that actually isn't the case that often. Most of the time it's in spite of, not because of someone just has a massive engine and they they sail their way to the top of the sport and they get a contract and then they're riding. And before you know it, they're winning races, but it's not because things have been optimized. It's not because at the age of 14, someone taught them proper pedaling technique. It's not because they had a really good bike fit their whole career and that they understand these concepts. It's more that they just ended up there and they're amazing athletes. And this is just a testament to how remarkable the human body is at solving equations, sometimes really poorly written equations. Hmm. Right. Yes. There they are smashing stuff and winning stages and they look like garbage on the bike and you're going, wow. Okay. It's so wild to me though, like watching the world tour and how many of those guys, like I'm thinking to myself, Mm -hmm. my gosh, why didn't you like get fitted on that bike to a position where you like normally sit on that saddle and they're all pushed forward. Like so many of them are pushed forward. So many of them are doing that. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. It, the answer is complex. Um, you know, sometimes riders go to a team camp and they fitter, you know, every team has a fitter they work with or a fit system they work with. And sometimes the rider and that fit system don't gel. They don't, they don't, the personalities don't add up. Sometimes I think fitters make the mistake of going to a camp with a bit of an agenda or perhaps a bit of a complex about working at the world level. And they're tentative to give that rider honest advice. Mm. Um, because this person's a superstar. I mean, you're going to go tell, you know, Tom Boonen or Peter Sagan that their position's wrong uh, or that they it needs to be refined. Well, that requires a lot of confidence in your own business. Yeah. And, you know, you're putting your reputation on the line. If you, if you make some fit recommendations to one of the best athletes in the world, you know, to Lizzie Armistead or whoever, and she goes and tries it, or excuse me, Lizzie uh, Dignan, I think is her married name now. Um, you know, or Marion Voss, pick your, pick your world-class rider. And, and they take that positional change and they try it for a month and then they tell you it sucked or it didn't work or they get injured. That's a, that's a big risk. So there's a lot of stake. There's a lot at stake there. And some riders are just so old school. They don't want to change. They don't, they've ridden that way since they were 14 and now they're winning races and they have a very ain't broke, don't fix it perspective. Not everyone has the, one of the most famous examples of this in pro sports is Tiger Woods. Not for the example you're thinking of. So Tiger, Tiger was known for changing his golf swing technique 
on the spot, even if it was a week before a major tournament, if he thought he could make long-term gains, frequently he would make changes to his technique at any point in the season. And he was wildly criticized for this, but he always had his eye on the long game. Meaning if I'm going to be better in a year, I'm going to even further the gap to my competition in a year because I start working on this change now. As soon as he knew that he could make a change that he thought would benefit his game, he made it immediately. And that's a very rare perspective. Most athletes don't have that. Would you agree? I would agree. And I think your point is, is, is interesting about the pros and, you know, that they have in many cases succeeded despite themselves Mm -hmm. and that, you know, I think they do, you know, you, you do adapt and you do learn to become efficient in, in a position and, and make those compensations. Mm -hmm. Agreed. And what we see is, you know, riders winning stages or riders in the lead group at the tour or, you know, the Volta or whatever, or winning classics or being top 10 at classics. What we don't see is the, every time they get on the massage table, the soigneur says, wow, your psoas is a steel cable. You know, wow, your lower back is smoked. And they go, yeah, it's been bothering me for months, but I've just been barely hanging on. And then they go to the race and they perform somehow. That doesn't mean things are optimized. I mean, I'm sure you would agree. Most often, most athletes, you go on the start line and you took a survey of all the crap they're dealing with, the list would be probably shockingly long. It's not like all these athletes are perfectly tuned machines every time they show up to, to start a race. In fact, it's more likely the opposite. Yep. Yeah. Just interested to understand your thoughts on like the optimal bar width. And I would imagine that goes in line with like the, the discipline as well. Um, and then Mm -hmm. also the handling skills of the athlete. Yeah. Yeah. Good. So how I think about stem length and bar width is the relationship of those levers and the impact they have on the steering of the bike. So when we look at how a road bike steers, most steering, most cornering on a road bike happens via leaning. You don't actually turn the bars that much, right? Turning the bars, meaning actually twisting the bars and using the bearings of the headset. You, when you initiate a corner, a lean on a road bike, a corner using a leaning technique on a road bike, your steering angle actually changes a very, very small amount. We're talking less than a degree, but on a mountain bike, because of the changes in terrain you have, and also because of the types of terrain, the switchbacks, both up and down in particular, but also the lower speeds, we do more turning of the bike by turning the handlebars. We do, we also lean the bike at times as well. So it's a combination of both, but When we turn the bars, the steering characteristics of the cockpit, meaning the stem length and the bar width, have a big impact on how that bike steers. The other consideration in mountain biking is how do you crash? Most of the time in mountain biking, you crash when the bar flicks out of your hands or flicks to the side. So you're going over a rock garden or down a drop, or you catch some air off a jump or off a ledge, and the bar, you're going straight and the bar turns to one side or the other. And when the bar is going not the same direction you are, the result is frequently ass over tea kettle, right? So we like to keep our tea kettles vertical. So when we're trying to prevent that bar from flicking or turning out of your hands, the wider the bar is, the more leverage you have on it. And the shorter the stem is, the more leverage you have. A long stem 
makes that lever a big giant rudder. And it gives the wheel a lot of leverage that you have to stabilize with your arms and shoulders. A short stem takes that rudder down and the wider bar gives you more stability. So we're talking about base of support. The way to think about this in terms of strength and conditioning as an analogy is how do we progress or regress any given exercise? Well, if someone goes to do a squat and they're horrible at it, then you might give them a supported squat would be a big regression, right? You might help them um, lower themselves down onto a chair or a box squat and give them a support to hold onto if they were really needed a lot of regression. How would you progress a squat? You would narrow the base of support or put them on an unstable surface. So you put them on a BOSU ball and it's wobbly, the squat becomes harder. If you give them a little bit wider stance, most of the time that makes them more stable. Narrow their stance, the squat becomes more challenging. So when we're widening the base of support with your hands on the mountain bike, that just makes that activity more stable. Same idea if you do a, a push-up with a narrow stance, a very narrow stance where you're touching your index finger and thumb and making like a diamond shape, do a push-up there, and then do a wider stance push-up where your hands are slightly wider than shoulder width. The stable is going to be more shoulder with your hands wider. So this is why we have a wide bar on a mountain bike. How wide do we want to go? Well, a good baseline is start with your road bar width. Let's pretend that you're 42, as many people are. Stand over your bike with the bike and the trainer and put your hands outside of that 42. Now measure to the end of your hands. That's from the fifth knuckle on the left hand to the fifth knuckle on the right hand. That's your minimum mountain bike width as a starting point. It's always easier to cut bar off rather than go longer. So I recommend you add two or three centimeters onto that width as a starting point. Try it with your grips out there. Put the brakes in the right place. Try a few descents. Try moving your hands in on the trail side. So if you do laps on a trail, you can move your hands in and out on the bar and find out fundamentally what feels most natural to you in that attack position. What you're considering is the stability of the bike descending. That's the important part in bar width. The compromises are if the bar gets too wide, sometimes it can interfere with shoulder mechanics and feel awkward. And also, of course, you have clearance issues between narrow trees and bridges and things like that. So there's a balance there. There's a really big trend towards really wide bars right now. I think bar width can definitely become excessive, but it can become a little addictive, just like pushing the front wheel bias forward and having this super upright position can seemingly be advantageous for certain performance aspects of mountain biking, but at the cost of your ability to generate force and recruit glute and hinge that torso like you were talking about, having that slight angle to the torso. So basically speaking, the wider the bars are and the shorter the stem are, the more stable the front end is. So that's why we do that. But a lot of mountain bikes will come stock with a zero offset post and a very, very short stem. We're talking 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 millimeters depending again on whether you're looking at an enduro bike or a cross country bike. And for someone who's adapted to road riding and they're used to sitting with a long extended spine and they're good at rotating the pelvis to the anterior or dumping that soup on your feet, the chances of them finding a mountain bike with, um, I'll say off the shelf with that short stem that's got enough reach for them, it's probably not that common. Also, one other point I'll say is for anyone under the height of about the average American male or 5'10", the majority of the time, 
we want your bars slammed on a 29er. Almost no one needs a riser stem or spacers on a bike with those with a 29 inch front wheel. Why? Because think about hip angles, not a limiting factor on a mountain bike on a road bike demands of the event. We've got drops, hoods, and tops. So when you're in the drops, you've got that compressed hip angle. When you're on the hoods, which is where you do most of your riding, you're somewhere between a really compressed hip angle and the tops, which is where we've got the most relief angle. You're riding on the mountain, on the mountain bike pretty much all the time on the tops in terms of bar drop. But when we have the bars too high on a mountain bike, people tend to select high bars on a mountain bike because they're worried about going over the bars during big drops on descents or steep descents. That comes back to one, using proper technique in that attack position and two, using a dropper post. When your butt is down and back and your weight's where it should be, the chances of going over the bar are almost none. But when your bars are too high, when you've got that 20 or 30 mils of spacers under the bar or the stem is is um, flipped, which it commonly is when I see people on 29ers, you're completely annihilating the ability to push down on that inside bar and be low enough on the medium flowy speed terrain. You're really sacrificing front end stability on a mountain bike when you have the bars high. And I'll tell you, Julie, back to your earlier comment about pushing the saddle forward and sitting with a more upright torso. When the bars are too high, people, when you raise the bars, you're taking weight off the front end. So people can, instead of lowering the bars, a lot of times what they do is they push the saddle forward. That's what I'm saying. And so then they end up way off the mark. And this is one of those negative spirals of bike fit where you can kind of end up making little adjustments, thinking you're making, you're gaining things towards the goal of making a bike more stable. When the thinking about the rider from the side view on a road bike, we've got that long, low isosceles triangle. We've got that big distance between the hands and their butt. And we want, we do want a rough proportional angular relationship between the shoulder, the arms and the torso there. We're going to compress the cockpit, which means bring those two points closer together. Those two points being the butt and the hands. So the triangle now becomes taller, but if it gets too tall, then it's not a stable structure. It's going to tip over. Does that make sense? It does. And I guess what I think is the combination of the short stem with the wider bars also kind of helps facilitate the reach. So You're people, correct. People have some yes. room to, to get low and to get to extend. Yes, you're absolutely correct. And so, well, to get a bit, to unpack that a little bit. Okay. So we have a really short stem and a wide bar. If we go to a wider bar, that effectively is the same thing reach wise as adding a longer stem. And the reason for that is because most mountain bike bars don't have, in my opinion, enough sweep. So if we had a zero degree bar with no back sweep, and you put your stem, let's imagine that you put your hands together, fist to fist, as though they were right next to the stem and you're holding on to that bar. Now make your hands wider, 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 wider. You can see that when they get really wide, your reach has increased because the bar is straight. It has no back sweep. If the bar had, if the bar was curved like a circle and you kept your radius the same from your belly button, as you made your hands wider, 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 the reach would not increase. You follow me? Mm -hmm. Because you're, you wouldn't be extending the distance from belly button to hand any farther 
But because bars have little to no back sweep, they've got seven to nine degrees is typical for most cross country bars. So at, even at a seven degree back sweep, as we make your hands really wide, you have increased your reach. So you're absolutely correct. It's the, there's a ratio of stem length and bar width that impact reach unless you're using a bar with enough sweep. And I prefer the SQ Labs bars, which have a 16 degree back sweep. That bar is amazing. I had a tie bar custom made for me that Travis Brown loaned me. Well, it's custom made for Travis and he loaned it to me to test out. And now I'm in love with it. And it's got a 25 degree back sweep and that thing's amazing. Then when you do that, even though the bar is pretty wide, I, I have to install a little bit longer stem on there because I've, I'm not gaining the width. Oh, excuse me. I'm not gaining the, the reach that I want compared to a standard seven degree back sweep bar. But most cross country bars are around seven to nine degrees back sweep. That's mm. typical. Yeah, you're, you're definitely correct on that. I mean, I guess it just seems generally like for the front end, we are following trends that have been developed by the downhill disciplines. Would you say well, that's true or not? Yeah, we, yeah, it's trickling down because riders realize how much faster they can go downhill with a really wide bar and a very short stem, but there's going to be a trade-off for that. And, and so when you're considering your mountain bike fit and when you're considering what mountain bike to buy, you have to be really realistic about what kind of riding am I going to do? Am I really a, a true kind of cross-country rider? I'm a roadie who wants to do some fun mountain biking and maybe I'll do some races. Well, I, I that doesn't mean I need a 40 millimeter stem, you know, some, and a, you know, 800 millimeter, 820 bar. That's, that's downhill territory. I, that's not going to serve me because I'm not going to be pushing my bike to those extremes of terrain where I need that type of technical assistance, mechanical assistance from those lever points. I'm going to split the difference between some handling considerations, of course, but also I'm going to set up the bike so that I can make good power. And that might be, you know, sometimes depending on what shop you're getting a mountain bike from and how the fitter operates things, you might have to push back a little bit and say, no, I need this 90 stem on here. It's okay. A 90 stem, you can still do quite a bit of high performance mountain bike handling and go quite fast. It's really fundamentally about the technique the rider has and knowing their limits. So I guess what I'm saying is don't let anyone convince you that you're going to die on a regular single track trail if you've got an 80 millimeter or 90 millimeter stem. That's perfectly within the range of what most riders can handle if they've got the adequate width bar over technical terrain. And don't, you know, also keep in mind, like, yeah, you know, John Tomac and Ned Overend and Travis Brown used to ride around on 120s and 130s and 140s. Travis talks about that in one of my interviews with, um, that I did on, on my pod early, he talks about bike design and how he used to have to ride ridiculously long stems before mountain bikes were long enough. Now they've gotten longer, top tubes have gotten longer and head tubes have gotten slacker so that people can use shorter stems. Would you say that someone's skill level would determine like stem length? Like, so like to your point, like maybe someone that doesn't quite have the skills, they go a little bit longer as opposed to someone maybe that has the skills goes shorter. Actually, I would say, you know, it depends on kind of what you're trying to accomplish and how you're trying to coach them into riding, but a shorter stem and a wider bar is going to give someone more leverage on that front wheel to make it more stable. So generally speaking, you put someone on a shorter stem, that's going to make their transition to learning how to ride a mountain bike in technical terrain easier. 
but again, it depends a little bit on, you know, how you want to coach them and, and what their end goal is. But generally speaking, it's easier to ride a mountain bike over technical terrain with a shorter stem and wider bars. So I would kind of say the opposite actually. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. All right, Colby. So in, in a bike fit, if, you know, you have the client sitting on a bench, the, the feet and legs hanging off in a non weight bearing position, and you bring that person, their feet to more that pedal position, and they indicate supination. Do you address that in your bike fits? Yeah, I would, I would definitely take that into consideration in their fit. Um, you know, that can have implications for the wedging you may or may not use in their shoe and pedal system can also have an indication or an implication in the amount of arch support you give them both medial and lateral and the type of footbed they use. I also consider their general muscular structure and nervous system type, I'll say, in how to recommend a footbed. Some people just need a more stable platform. Some people, we don't want to make things too stiff and too unforgiving under the foot. So we might recommend a less supported footbed. But, and then also you, you, supination can play a role in foot separation distance or cue factor and stance width. So there's a supination, a tendency towards supination in their riding posture. You can sometimes find good results if you push their feet a little wider, sometimes not. It can be a little bit of a trial and error situation. For me, the magic is about aligning kind of the head of the femur with the tracking of the patella and the second and third metatarsal. So drawing a straight line through the middle of the hip, the middle of the knee, and the middle of the foot. And we want those that relationship under power to be relatively in line in a vertical line ideally that won't always be possible with some athletes but that's sort of the, the end goal is to facilitate that clean tracking so but yeah just as you would consider pronation to be something to address in bike fitting you would consider supination and you know for me i strike a balance between thinking about foot support and arch support for either pronation or supination you know, we have to consider that everyone has a tendency towards one or the other. The problem is only when it's excessive or when it causes dysfunction further up the chain or maybe in the foot and ankle itself. That's when we have to address it. Um, and that dysfunction can come in the form of pain or obvious leakage of torque or excessive motion of the knees, for example. And maybe there's no pain now, but if we make the rider stronger and they train over time, then that develops into pain. So we have to use our crystal ball a little bit and say, okay, I can't see how this isn't going to cause problems down the road. I've got to address it. I've got to educate the client. So thinking about the foot and specifically about arch support, this is the way I, I've been thinking about it recently. Any, what is arch support? It's a prosthetic device. And what do all prosthetic devices do? They weaken musculature. They induce hypertrophy. Example, let's say that you had a client who got in a car accident and they got whiplash. You give them a neck brace for eight weeks. When you take the neck brace off, are the neck muscles going to be weaker or stronger? Weaker. Right. Because the, the device supported the head. It did the work of the muscles, right? Well, an arch support on the medial arch or bracing the heel is doing the same thing. It's supporting the foot. So every time we ride or race in a shoe with an orthotic support, we are effectively, every time we use a footbed, that supports the medial arch or lateral arch, we are enabling hypertrophy of the ankle and foot because we're supporting those muscles. 
So I like to coach my athletes to counterbalance the use of their carbon fiber flippers, I call them, or their cycling shoes with all their arch supports, which I think can be essential and can definitely increase performance on the bike. We need to counter oppose this with conditioning and strengthening of the foot and muscles of the ankle with things like barefoot walking, uh, yoga, um, walking on the beach. That's a great one. Barefoot walking on the beach is one of the best exercises for the foot, but also running or trail hiking, walking in minimal shoes. So I guess for me, I've always thought that the arch support in cycling is a good way to reduce like energy leak, I guess I would say, mm -hmm. um, that mm -hmm. the foot mechanism is different on the, on the bike as opposed to walking or, or running and trying to basically bring everything up to the foot as opposed to have the foot drop down every time, kind of to your point about the saddles, like trying to, to match Mm -hmm. Um, so that, that's one thing I was, I was thinking about, but, but with the supination, you know, if, if this person, this client who demonstrates the supination and, and non-weight bearing, and they are feeling like when they're compressing on the pedal, they're feeling more pressure on their pinky or like that fifth yep. metatarsal, like yeah. how, how do you correct for that? Yeah. Good question. Okay. So uh, another common sensation I find for supineers, they just find a lot of pressure on the lateral side of the foot. Also, right, right. Right. They just yep. feel like their foot's being smashed into that shoe. Mm -hmm. This is a weird little wormhole of bike fitting. The answer for someone who has excessive pronation or excessive supination on the bike is the same answer. It's medial arch support. And here's why. When you're a supinator and you're pushing that fifth metatarsal or that pinky toe into the the shoe or the lateral aspect of the foot is just getting smashed into that shoe by adding medial arch support. It gives them something to counterbalance that weight, right? It gives mm -hmm. them something to push into on the, the medial side of the foot or under the, the major arch, the medial arch, that's the arch next to the ball of the foot. So it balances out that pressure. If there's nothing under that medial arch and they're just jamming that outside aspect of the foot in there by bringing the, just as you described, by bringing the the surface of the shoe effectively up to meet the foot, we distribute that pressure over a larger surface area. If someone's a pronator and they're smashing the medial aspect of the foot or the first metatarsal or the ball of the foot into that pedal, which is more common, and they're just getting a lot of pressure under the big toe or under the, the ball of the foot, then we also add our support behind the ball of that foot to bring more pressure to the fifth metatarsal or the pinky. So like I said, it doesn't make a lot of sense logically, but the solution is the same either way. It's to add arch support on the medial side of the foot, whether someone's a pronator or a supinator that may also end up being in, in conjunction with wedging, right? So you may add a cleat wedge or possibly an in the shoe wedge, which only goes under the metatarsal heads or a heel wedge, which only goes under the heel and uh, any combination of those can sometimes alleviate that pressure and give the brighter a more clear proprioceptive response to feel what's happening to engage the foot in that pedal. And that's fundamentally what I find with cycling is that the danger is that the foot and ankle get really weak. The medial arch musculature gets really weak and the foot just starts to collapse. And also the feet turn off, they get dead because you're always in this carbon fiber flipper and there's not a lot of proprioceptive response. People, their feet fall asleep. I also see when I do my Greg Cook functional movement screen that, man, most cyclists have crap for ankle stability. 
you put them on one leg and ask them to, to lunge over a dowel and their ankles just going crazy trying to stabilize. Now, okay, if we break down cycling to f- into primal movement patterns, there are six primal movement patterns. Bending, squatting, pushing, pulling, twisting, and lunging. Of those six, seven if you count gait. Seven, gait is kind of the end result of all those primal movement patterns. So a primal movement pattern is something that Paul Check teaches, and it is a way to reduce all athletic sports, all athletic movement into these primal six fundamental patterns. All of them can be broken down into this. And when we look at what cycling is, statically, it is a hip hinge, right? It's a forward bend. And then it is a series of lunges from that static forward hip hinge. And then it is a series of pulls when you pull on the bar or sometimes a push, like in a mountain bike, when you pump and you push the bike down to go down the, down the trail and gain free speed, you are pushing on the bars. That's a push. So we have those four movement patterns are basically fundamentally what cycling is. We don't have a lot of twisting, maybe a little bit of twisting when you pull on the bars really hard. And we don't have, um, we don't have any squatting because how much cycling is bilateral? None. It is always unilateral. So the most active, single, most important fundamental, uh, excuse me, primal movement pattern in cycling is a lunge. And if you don't have a stable foot and ankle and you can't make a good lunge in a gray cook FMS functional movement screen, but you're a cyclist, that tells me a lot. <laughs> it tells me that, that you're missing some of the basic core neurological ability to make good force by pushing one foot down and away from you. That is what cycling is fundamentally over a good range with a lot of stability and control. So when we pedal around in our carbon fiber footbeds or our carbon fiber flippers, I should say, and in some cases with our carbon fiber footbeds, I've ridden in those for years, actually. I'm as guilty of this as anyone. And we turn that foot into that lever that makes us a really good cyclist in the moment. But man, we got to offset that just like we have to offset, you know, kyphosis and forward head posture and rounded shoulders from all our cycling. We've got to offset feet and ankles have to be conditioned to be strong and stable bases of support. Because if you're pushing really hard at the hip and the knee, you're using your quads to extend the knee. You're using your, your glutes to deliver all that force through the hip. And then it goes all the way down through the chain, down through the chain and your foot can't transmit that force or it's completely 100% reliant on that foot and shoe over time. I can't see how that wouldn't result in some sort of dysfunction. That's just me looking at the body as a cybernetic organism, which is simply a system of systems. So besides like the barefoot walking on a beach, if you don't have a beach handy, um, <laughs> we don't have a lot of those here. What I'm, do you I'm think? in Boulder. So, <laughs> yeah. um, yep. like, how about like some barefoot, like BOSU ball work or any sort yep. of like balance yep. board work, like barefoot. Yep. Is that, it do you think be, that serves a purpose? Yes, that can serve a purpose. Um, walking barefoot or in very minimal shoes, we'll say any minimalist shoe, you know, I did my episode with Jesse Stensland and she's got her website, Feet Freaks. Hmm. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. She's got a huge resource of different minimal shoes on there that are, some of them are really cool and amazing, but the simple ones are Vibram Five Fingers, which are the weird frog looking five finger shoes. Um, Vivo Barefoot are some good examples. There's another company in Germany called Wilding that makes amazing shoes. 
So she's got a whole list of resources on there or just walk barefoot. You don't have to buy a minimalist shoe. The rules are don't puncture, don't burn, and don't freeze your feet. <laughs> Those are the rules. So I walk my dog around the neighborhood sometimes barefoot. I walk in the yard. I do Tai Chi barefoot and then a yard. That's super important for grounding and connection with the earth, you know, touch the earth help your biome, all those things. I also walk and run in my Vibram five fingers. That said, the downside to this whole equation is potentially injury or plantar fasciitis. You want to be very careful when you recommend that your clients transition or start to work with barefoot or minimal shoes, especially if they have a history of plantar fasciitis. I'll tell you, plantar fasciitis is miserable. It's, it's the same exact thing as remember that time, Julie, we've all done this where we crashed and we weren't wearing gloves and we skinned both our palms. Oh, you, right. Exactly. Oh, brutal. And then the next week you're going, I'm such an idiot. I'm never riding my bike without gloves again. I can't do anything. I can't make coffee. I can't mm. make food. I can't wash my hands. I can't go to the bathroom. You know, I can't do anything because my hands are skinned. Well, having plantar fasciitis is like that, but worse, because let me tell you, we all take walking for granted until we can't do it. And when you have severe pain in both your feet and you can't walk, you are screwed. So we want to avoid that if possible. So if somebody has a history of plantar fasciitis, you want to be very cautious about recommending the transition to strengthen their feet and arches. Mm. The other thing I'll say is, so there, you can be a bit clever about this. Take a backpack with you and to put your old shoes in your backpack and walk for 10 minutes in your Vibrams and then switch when your feet start to feel it. Then next week you make it to 15 minutes or 20 minutes, right? We don't have to go out for two hour hikes and then come home and be shattered. Right. So what you're saying is use the footbeds, but, but also keep your feet conditioned. Yes, exactly. Off the bike, keep your feet right. conditioned, walk, okay. walk barefoot in your living room. Gotcha. You know, it doesn't have to be a crazy, if you, the, the best single actionable daily activity to build foot and strength stability is walking the dog. If you got mm -hmm. a dog, you walk, start using less and less shoe for that dog walk. And in the summer, eventually try to get barefoot. That's a great way to do it. And the other point I'll mention is the, the beautiful thing about walking barefoot and even running barefoot, even if it's only for 60 seconds, especially on concrete, which is brutal, is it's self-corrective. If you have crappy running form and you're slapping that rear foot down on the ground and a huge heel striker and you've got bad posture in your foot, man, go run down the, the concrete in bare feet and your posture and your running technique will be perfect because mm -hmm. they have to. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's so it's self-corrective. It's a beautiful exercise in that respect. That said, don't overdo it. It's really easy to injure yourself doing that. You have to be very careful about your transition, especially as an athlete, a cyclist who's used to doing things like four hour bike rides, right? A 12 minute barefoot run is the equivalent of like a hundred mile bike ride. <laughs> so proceed with caution. The other, the last point I'll make is we don't just want to be barefoot. We want to do, what's our rule? How you do anything is how you do everything. So we want to walk through the world with consciousness, postural consciousness. Again, one of the reasons that barefoot walking is so beautifully self-corrective is because suddenly you're very engaged with your environment because you step on a tiny stone, it hurts. Some of that is okay because you want to develop a callus on your feet. You want to toughen the skin of your feet and toughen those muscles and those fat pads on the bottom of your feet. But as you do this, you are going to learn to engage with your environment in a new way because suddenly stepping on a sharp pine needle even can have a big consequence. So you learn to engage and become proprioceptive aware and active with your environment. And part of that really important process is stepping with awareness 
thinking about the foot as a tripod. This means first metatarsal or the area right under the center of the big toe, uh, excuse me, the ball of the, big, of the foot, meaning the, the ball of the big toe specifically, the fifth metatarsal, which is the ball under the pinky toe in the center of the calcaneus. When I say foot as a tripod, what we want is even pressure on those three points while you're walking or anytime you're standing. So if you're a pronator, you're going to smash that first metatarsal. You're going to have to learn to put more weight on the fifth metatarsal. If you are a supinator, you're going to put more weight on the pinky toe or the fifth metatarsal. You're going to have to learn to put more weight on the first metatarsal. Condition your foot and arch to handle this. That's part of what barefoot and minimal foot, minimal shoe walking does. If you are like most Western people, here's a broad brush, and you're in a hurry to go do everything and do all the things and be so yang and check off the list, tick, 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 get it done. You are leaning forward and weighting the balls of your feet more than you are the heels. And if you're a cyclist and you're used to pushing down on a pedal where the axle is near the ball of the foot, you are used to weighting the balls of the feet. So in standing posture, you might find someone has a sway back posture where when you look at them from a postural line from the side, their butt is sticking out forward ahead of their knees or their hips are forward to their knees and their knees are forward to their toes or maybe forward to the center line of the foot. And that indicates that they're used to carrying their weight on the balls of their feet. So if you feel the first metatarsal and the fifth metatarsal, but not the heel, you might focus on grounding and pulling your weight back. So it's centered over the foot. So when we train the foot musculature, we're not just only walking barefoot or in minimal shoes. We're also doing it in a way that has postural consciousness, presence, and awareness of how you engage the ground. Just like Jess Elliott said in my pod with her, I asked her, what do you find is most common when your cyclists come in the gym? And she said, it was the perfect sentence. She said it very eloquently. She said, I'm paraphrasing now, cyclists aren't really good at interacting with the ground or the earth. <laughs> and man, I'll tell you what's fundamental to being a human. It's interacting with the earth, right? I love that from that podcast. I think about that so often. Right? Yeah. It was a great nugget. Yeah. And I, I love this Colby about this idea of this tripod and being mindful just when you're walking. Like I love just being able to learn in everything you're doing. And I think mm. I, I like that so much. And I, when you were talking about kind of that anterior tilt and where you feel the pressure on the feet, you know, we think, mm -hmm. think a lot about that during cross country skiing and just how yes. people's pelvic position, the, the pressure on the foot is so different. Mm -hmm. And it's really, yep. it's incredible feedback for your, your, your postural control. Yes. Agreed. I, I know exactly what you mean. When I get on the, on the skis every winter, I go for my first ski and I'm all forefoot. Yep. And I, I, it's taken me a few years to remember now. Now we're having this conversation. I haven't gone skiing yet this year. We don't have enough snow here yet quite, but uh, it's like, I have to focus on consciously driving with the heel and and wading back. And then my ski, my, all my ski posture and my strength and my, and my stability on the skis just transforms instantly. I remember trying to learn how to cross country ski, skate ski for the first time with Jonathan Vodders when we were like 18. And I was just a complete train wreck, like falling over left, right, and center. And at least most of that was due to the fact that I was just on the balls of my feet and you can't ski at all like that. So true. And I think that's mm. just a symptom of cycling, right? Like we're, that's what we're used yes. to doing. Yeah. It's how we engage with the pedal. Mm -hmm. So one of the little things that we can learn is how to 
how to offset all these habits that we get from the bike that maybe take us away from being able to engage with our physical surroundings in an optimal way. Did I answer all your questions and I believe you did ramble on I, too much? You should see my notepad of notes. It's, <laughs> it's horrifying. I'll send it to you. <laughs> I tried to take great. notes as we went, but no, I think those are all the questions I had and more. Awesome. Yeah, this is great. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Oh and, my uh, gosh. Thank you. Coming on the episode and asking questions. I, I hope our listeners find all my, my ramblings useful. I'm, I'm sure there's tons of nuggets in there for everyone. Yeah. So good. Attention, Space Monkeys, public service announcement. Really, technically, it's a disclaimer. You already know this, but I'm going to remind you that I'm not a lawyer and I'm not a doctor, so don't take anything on this podcast to constitute lawyerly or doctorly advice. I don't play either of those characters on the internet. Also, we talk about lots of things, and that means we have opinions. My guests' opinions are not necessarily reflective of the opinions of anyone who is employed by or works at Fast Talk Labs. That includes Case, Trevor Connor, or Jana Martin. What I'm saying is, when we say things, we're speaking for ourselves, not for other people, which should be self-evident. But I kind of think disclaimers basically say things that are self-evident, which makes you wonder why we have disclaimers. Anyway, also if you want to reach out and talk to me about things, feedback on the podcast, good, bad, or otherwise, you may do so at the following email address, info at cyclinginalignment.com that's all spelled just like it sounds gratitude